My name is John Fairchild, and I'm a pastor, uh, interim pastor here at Grace, and uh, glad to uh, be able to bring a message this morning from Acts 16. We've been doing a little series, working our way through Acts 16, looking at uh, every verse. We're sort of halfway through the chapter at this point, <clears throat> and uh, we'll, we'll pick it up. Paul and uh, his companions being Silas and uh, Timothy, and probably Luke was traveling with Paul at this point, and they are now going into the city of Philippi. Last week, uh, we, we saw God's Spirit directing them from another place to go uh, across some water uh, and enter into an area, a region called Macedonia, which would be well, maybe still called Macedonia today, but it's in the area of Greece, just at the north end of the Aegean Sea. And so there Paul is going, and he's taking the gospel to brand new territory uh, into Europe. Uh, and so this is a significant moment. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll pick it up at verse 11. Father, I was just sitting there thinking how grateful I am for songwriters and hymn writers who wrestle with words and phrases and verbs and nouns and adjectives to give expression to who you are and what you mean to us. As we've sung of a roaring lion aroused out of the grave, we've sung of light piercing into the darkness of the chasm of our souls, we've, we've declared you to be the way maker and the miracle worker and the promise keeper and the light of the world. We say amen to all of that. Now, by your spirit, be present here and speak to our hearts through your word, we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 16 and verse 11. So they've been directed by God's spirit to go to Macedonia. Verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. I like that. Philippi was a Roman, classified as a Roman colony. Uh, it was quite some distance from Rome, but there were certain regions and cities that had a special status, a special classification, uh, classed as Roman colonies, and that meant that uh, the, the ways and the language and the customs and the, the uh, currency and the laws were very, very Roman. Uh, and, uh, and so that was what Philippi was. If you lived in Philippi, you were automatically a Roman citizen. And uh, that becomes important later in the chapter. Uh, we'll, we'll get there in a few weeks. But uh, 
people of Philippi were very, very Roman. Roman soldiers, when they retired from their tours of duty, often moved to Philippi to live there. And they, were, uh, they, they gave Philippi even a whole new pride in being Roman. So that's just a bit of a background on, this, on the town of Philippi. I don't know how big it was. Uh, Ephesus was a huge city, Philippi not that large, but it was a significant city. So uh, Paul and his entourage, they arrive in Philippi. Uh, imagine yourself going into a strange city, uh, never been here with the gospel before. Uh, you know this, the reputation of the city, and it's, it's, it's a good, it's a classy kind of a city. And uh, so you would go, what would you do? Well, I suppose you'd first look for a place to, to sleep, and maybe you'd find an inn uh, somewhere in the city, uh, and uh, you'd book yourself in, into the inn, and then you'd sort of start wandering around. And uh, I can just imagine Paul saying, let's just walk around and, and let's listen to people, listen to conversations, ask a few questions, uh, you know, just sort of get the lay of the land. I wonder, I, the big question was, I wonder why God sent us here. I wonder. And, uh, and so there they are in, in Philippi, and they've arrived. And, and uh, as they're walking around, maybe they buy a, a few items at the marketplace, and they're interacting with merchants, and, uh, and they, perhaps they would ask, you know, wh what's going on here in a, in, in, in a religious kind of way? Is, are there, you know, wh who, who worships what around here in Philippi? We're new to the area. And, uh, and maybe they would hear about... Uh, uh, Roman gods and maybe a little temple somewhere and Greek gods and, and uh, maybe someone told them, yeah, there's a few, uh, a few Jewish people here. They don't have a synagogue. I think they meet down by the riverside on, on their Sabbath. Ah, that's what they were listening for, a, a connection to, uh, to God's people. And, uh, and so uh, we read here that Paul said, uh, verse 13, on the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected. Why did they expect to find a place of prayer there? They must have heard about it. And so they thought, let's, let's check it out, see who's there. So they went down to the riverside on Saturday. And uh, it says that they found a group of uh, women there. Interesting. No men? No, apparently not. A group of faithful, godly women were there, uh, probably Jewish, most of them. Uh, in, in, uh, in their upbringing. <clears throat> there were Jews uh, all over the Roman Empire. There were little groups of Jewish people in just about every city of any size. The Jew, it's called the diaspora, and the Jews had spread out uh, many years ago and had settled in various places, and there were a few here in Philippi. And so they, they found them. And Paul says here, or the, the writer, Luke says, we began to speak to the women who were there. I imagine a couple of or maybe three or four men, as I, I think Timothy was with them, and I think Luke was as well, and Silas and Paul, and they would have sat down with the group, and everybody's looking at them. There's some strangers coming in, and they introduce themselves, and who are you, and where are you from? And, and, uh, uh, and then, uh, as would often be the case, a visitor would be invited, especially a visiting rabbi like Paul would be invited to speak to them, as in any synagogue. This wasn't technically a synagogue, but it was a gathering of Jewish people. So Paul began to speak. Now, just between you, me, and the doorpost, I would love to have been sitting there and heard what Paul said. Oh, my. How would he start? Of course he's going to speak to them about Jesus. But how would he go about it? Uh, that intrigues me. I would love to have heard it. 
Uh, and, uh, but, you know, we have some clues uh, as to how we would go about it. We have uh, the, the, the basics of a sermon in Acts 13 that he spoke to a, a city in Antioch. And uh, we have, of course, his various writings and explanations of the gospel in his letters, Ephesians, uh, Thessalonians, Galatians, etc. So we know a lot of the language and the things that he would say. And no doubt he was just sharing the same things here uh, with the women who were gathered there. Amongst the women who were there, we don't know how many. Was it six? Was it 20? Don't know, but a, a handful. There was a woman named Lydia. And we're told a little bit about Lydia. Uh, we're told that she was from the city of Thyatira. And Thyatira was a, at least a couple hundred miles east, back where Paul had just come from in Asia. And uh, Thyatira was a famous city, um, a, a textile city. And, and uh, they, they produced uh, textiles and especially a certain kind of purple cloth made of wool, probably. And we're, we're told here that Lydia was a, quote, dealer in purple cloth. And uh, so uh, apparently this purple cloth was really expensive to make. Uh, one commentator who has researched out some of this stuff says, uh, William, William Barclay, a Scottish fellow is his name, he says, Lydia came from the very top of the social scale, probably being a merchant and a dealer in purple cloth. She was a purple merchant. The purple dye had to be gathered drop by drop from a certain shellfish and was so costly that to dye a pound of wool it would take the equivalent of 150 British pounds. So expensive merchandise that she was dealing with, as I said, probably a wealthy woman from a higher up in the social class of those days. Interesting, but she's there with these Jewish people. And then we're told she was a worshiper of God. That's a phrase that occurs several times throughout the book of Acts, and it designates a group of people who are not Jewish, they're, they would have been raised Roman or Greek or Asian in some way and it would have been raised in, 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 in a, a different type of religion, but they had converted to worship the Jewish God, but they were not Jewish. They probably didn't keep the dietary laws or the dress or the various customs of Jewish people, but they did tune in very carefully and fear God and worship God. And so she's designated as a worshiper of God. Remember Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? He was a Roman centurion, not Jewish, and yet it says he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He's one of those. In Acts 17.4, it says, as Paul was preaching in Thessalonica, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Again, that's those worshipers of God who are Greeks, not Jewish, but worship Yahweh. Acts 18.7, a fellow who's a Greek named Titius Justus says he's described as, quote, a worshiper of God. So Lydia was one of them, <clears throat> an interesting group of people. Uh, and so her heart was open to the things of God. Paul didn't have to jump over all the hurdles of the, of the Greek gods and the Roman gods. He already had a connection here with them and with Lydia. So they began to speak to the women. And what did he say? Well, I suspect when Paul spoke to Jewish people or worshipers of God, he always began with their scriptures and their Old Testament and their history. And embedded in those scriptures were messianic prophecies, little clues and little things that were said and little predictions about what the coming Messiah would be like and other details about his, his ministry. And, and, uh, and so I'm 
pretty sure that Paul would have begun by referring to their scriptures and to the Old Testament Messiah prophecies and uh, in telling them, perhaps, at a certain point, the Messiah has come and we're here to announce his coming. This would have been the biggest news, if it's true, the biggest news they had ever heard in their lives. This was quite a moment that, that an announcement like that was made to them. I could imagine if I was one of them, I would say, wow, proof, please. You know, back up your statement. That's the biggest news I've ever heard in my life. And so Paul, first of all, would talk about the Messiah prophecies, and he would talk about how the Messiah was promised even to Eve and Adam in Genesis 3, Genesis 22, maybe Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, and then a replacement ram uh, replaced Isaac and died for him, you might say. And then uh, maybe in uh, <coughs> uh, Psalm 22, about this mysterious suffering person who they gambled for his clothes and pierced his hands, etc. cetera. Uh, Psalm 16, uh, evidence in there of a resurrection that obviously wasn't David. Who was it? Uh, and then uh, Isaiah 7, virgin birth. Isaiah 11, the, 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 the spirit on this mysterious person, uh, the Messiah. Isaiah 53, huge chapter, Isaiah 53, the crowning touch of all. Micah 5, 2, the birthplace of the Messiah being Bethlehem. Paul would have connected all the dots for them. Uh, you ever watch uh, Hercule Poirot? You think, where's he going now? <clears throat> Detective stories, Agatha Christie, all of that. Anyhow, the whole story is... is, is clues, right? And finding the clues and following a lead. Oh, not him. And down here. And, 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 and we know this and we know that. And she was here at, at 10.05 and this happened here and they were arguing about something. And, you, and about 10 minutes from the end of the program, uh, Poirot gathers all the suspects together and he goes through all the clues and then he points the finger and he says, there's your killer right there. And all the pieces fall into place. Well, Paul was doing that. And he would have said to the women here, after all the clues are laid out, it's Jesus of Nazareth. That would have been very convincing to hear him speak that, and the Spirit of God would have been working. But he's, they, they might say, that's very impressive. Tell us more. So he would have told about the life, especially the miracles and the signs that Jesus performed back just a few years ago in, uh, in and around Jerusalem and Judea. And uh, he would have spoken of the signs that were con confirmation <coughs> from God that this was indeed the Messiah. He would have spoken then about the arrest, beating, and crucifixion of Jesus. And perhaps you could see the faces of the women falling like, oh, no, I, th I thought we were on to something here. But apparently, apparently that's not the Messiah then if they killed him. And then a strange twist in the story. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Paul would have gone through the evidences uh, of all of that uh, sort of uh, uh, part, of the, part of the story. And then Paul, I suspect, might have said, <clears throat> his death on the cross by the Romans, by the Gentiles, was not an accident, and it was not a tragedy, and it was not a murder. And then he would have used language that every Jew would understand. It was a sacrifice of atonement. And they would have went, because they knew what that meant, that a, a substitute dies to bear the sins of the sinner. And Paul would have gone now into some of the doctrine and the theology of, of Jesus' death. <clears throat> His death was a sacrifice of atonement. And then he would have spoken of 
who died for our sins. And he would have turned them back to Isaiah 53, upon him our iniquities fell, and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, I'm speculating. All we know is that he began to speak to the women who were present. And then probably Paul might have finished by telling them his own story. I was a Pharisee. I hated Christians. I thought they were heretics. And in my strict and passionate obedience to the God that I loved, I was trying to wipe them out so as not to ruin the faith. And then I met Jesus. And they would go, whoa, on the road to Damascus, et cetera, et cetera. And he would have spoken of his own conversion, maybe with tears in his eyes. Now we read this. Lydia's listening intently. And then it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. <clears throat> Two important words here. Opened and respond. The opening of her heart was God's work of grace in Lydia's life. Her response of faith joined her to him forever. It saved her. God saved her through faith, as we are told all through the New Testament. The Lord opened her heart, God's initiative and gracious work upon her, her response to his initiative in her life. <clears throat> what a beautiful description of a person getting saved. The Lord's gracious action in Lydia's humble faith response. You know, when I was 19, I'd been raised in a Christian home. I knew all the gospel. I'd read parts of the Bible. I'd listened to hundreds of sermons. Went to church twice every Sunday with my folks. But something, something went off the rails in my life, and by the time I was 19, I was a bold and convinced and pretty happy atheist. I was done with the Christian faith. I had discovered science, which had all the answers. And the faith of my parents and the folks that I was raised with uh, was, uh, it was nice, but it wasn't true. <laughs> Obviously not true. <clears throat> that was when I was 19. I cannot explain to you how two and a half years later, I was reading my Bible every day and could hardly wait to get home from work and crack it open and read some more. And I was a serious follower of Jesus. I can't explain it, as I said, other than to say, God opened my heart, and I thank him every day for it. It wasn't me and my brilliance. Good grief. He was gracious to me. He's knocking on your heart if it hasn't happened yet. <clears throat> Two immediate things happened in Lydia's life as she responded to the gospel message. First of all, she was baptized. It says so right there, probably in the river that they were sitting beside. Let's, let's, let's get baptized. Sort of a declaration in the material world of the spiritual change in her heart. That's what baptism is. It's an important step to just seal the deal. Though baptism doesn't save you, it's an important step as a beginning step as a follower of Jesus. That's the first thing she did. The second thing she did was she 
would not take no for an answer in inviting them home for stay at her house. Where are you staying, Paul? Oh, we're in an inn downtown. That old flea bag hotel, no way, you're coming home to my house. No, 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 I could hear the argument. You don't say yes right away, I'm sure. But then Paul said, quote, unquote, and she persuaded us. She was a persuasive woman. And when it came to doing good and loving God's people and inviting people into your home and sharing what you have, she did it. I like those two immediate fruits of salvation. Baptism, hospitality. We'll come back to that later because that happens again in another person's life uh, later in the chapter. Must be important. Okay, I want to talk to you about something else. I thought here's a chance to, to talk about this. Uh, sudden versus slow conversion. Lydia's was a sudden conversion. She went to the river that morning, a worshiper of God, which is good. She came home a worshiper and follower of Jesus, which is sort of completes everything, right? And it all happened within a, a few hours, probably. And her conversion was, was very sudden, very clear, and uh, unmistakable. <clears throat> and then there are those of us, lots of us, I've met lots of Christians, I sort of am one. Uh, those of us who probably envy people like Lydia, because we can't remember the exact moment when we became Christians. Sometimes we're even a little insecure about where exactly I stand. Do I have enough faith? Uh, I, I can't remember the hour and the day when it happened, like brother so-and-so over here. I wonder if there's something wrong with my faith. Uh, maybe I should know. And, and sometimes I wonder if, I, if, I, if my faith is, is enough to, to save me. And, and so we have these insecurities about our Christian faith and our Christian life. And, and, it, it is, and it took a long time. Lydia, two hours, I speculate. Other people, years. I'll show you an example of a, of a slow conversion. It comes from the book of John. And his name is Nicodemus. You remember, oh, that's the guy that came to Jesus by night in John 3. That's correct. Uh, Nicodemus is introduced to us in John chapter 3. He was a Pharisee. He was a very learned and committed follower of the Jewish religion and a teacher of the law. But he was curious about Jesus, so he came to him by night, asked him some questions, and that's when Jesus spoke those famous words to Nicodemus when he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You know, it's a spiritual birth. It's not works. It's not all that stuff. It's, it's, it's an encounter with a life-changing, heart-changing encounter with God. And, uh, and so that's what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. How did Nicodemus respond on that evening? We don't know. He just drops out of the picture. Didn't say he believed and began to follow Jesus. He just disappears. What happened to him? We don't know. Actually, we do know. Sixteen chapters later, in John chapter 19, Jesus, after dying on the cross, and all the darkness and everything that happened, Two men came forward to care for him. All the disciples had ran, ran away home scared. There were a few women waiting there, but they didn't have the means to be able to do anything for, for the Savior that they loved. But two men came forward. One was Joseph of Arimathea. says he was a rich man. And the other one was Nicodemus. Nicodemus. What he did there on that day when he took down the body of Jesus, anointed it with perfume, 
a loving act, wrapped it properly in linen cloths. Instead of being thrown into the garbage heap like some of the other crucified people were, he cared for the body of, obviously an act of love and devotion to someone he loved. And now he's coming, stepping out of the shadows. You might say he was more saved than all the disciples. Like it's amazing what he did. What happened in those 16 chapters, maybe two to three years in there? Nicodemus was undergoing, in my opinion, a slow conversion. Uh, where did Nicodemus finally believe? We don't know, but we see evidence in his devotion to Jesus that there was a living and real faith in his life and in his heart when he stepped up to care for his Lord. Here's a, a, an illustration to uh, maybe be helpful. The illustration is about crossing the border <clears throat> from Canada into the U.S. Why you would ever do that, I don't know, but... Uh, <coughs> Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> I love all of our American cousins. Uh, crossing the border, there's two ways. One way is you can cross at, uh, oh, say, uh, Buffalo or Niagara Falls or Windsor. And you drive up to the border, and uh, there's, there's basically almost a line on the road. And you, you cross the line, and it says, welcome to the USA, right? It's so clear that you have crossed over and you're now on U.S. soil. And uh, we've all experienced that, and it's, it's just, it's, there's just no mistaking where I am. There's another way, though, to cross the border, and that would be, you're probably not supposed to do this, but, but uh, say out in uh, Manitoba. You know, there's a lot of empty land uh, out there, uh, fields, marshes, forests, all, you know, kind of where the border is. And, and if you wanted to cross from Manitoba, into, into the U.S., and you, you did it by walking, you could probably walk through a lot of wilderness, but it wouldn't be clear to you when you've crossed over, right? So all the dirt looks the same, the trees look the same, everything looks the same, so you're, you know you got to go south, so you start walking, and the sun rises in the east, and it sets in the west, so you know this is south, you just keep on plodding along. You come to a little town. And, uh, and you think, oh, great, a little town. And uh, you're, you're, you're walking into this town. You're wondering where you are. And a car drives by. And you just happen to notice that the license plates are from North Dakota. And you think, huh, I guess one of the North Dakotans has come up here to Manitoba to visit us. That's not unusual. And then um, you walk a little further. And a police car comes by. And instead of saying RCMP on the side, it says sheriff. And you go, what are they doing up here? And you walk a little further and you see it looks like a coffee shop down the road and you go, oh, right, Tim Hortons, I'm going in for a coffee and a bagel. And, uh, and you, it's Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> and uh, you're like, where am I? And all of a sudden, the lights are starting to come on and you see a flagpole and you look up the pole and it's the stars and stripes. And you say, I'm in the States. I've made it over. When did you cross? I don't know sometime in the last two days. And the landscape around you has changed and it gives evidence to where you are. Now let's go back to our spiritual situation again here. <clears throat> two important things to tell you. The look of the scenery will change around you after you come to Christ. Number one, what I mean by that? Sin now looks different. Sin used to be funny not funny anymore. It used to be attractive. Now it's kind of ugly. 
not enjoyable. In fact, sometimes you, you sorrow over sin. Either it's a sin you still discover in your own life and you shake your head and go, why do I keep doing that? Or the sin in the society around us and sometimes you just feel sad because you know what it is and how destructive it is. Your attitude towards sin has changed. Another thing that changes is your attitude toward the, the Bible, the scriptures. It's no longer a, a boring old book with the irrelevant rules and commandments. Its words will begin to speak to your heart. I can tell you exactly when that happened in my life. I, I was gone to another city. I went to Kingston. I took the Bible with me. I was not the, a reader of the Bible to this point, but something was happening in me, and I cracked out my Bible when I got into my room in Kingston going to school down there, and I read, uh, I remember exactly what I read. I read the book of Jude, strangely. I don't know why. I read Jude, and I never stopped. I mean... I did sleep, but uh, I, was, I was taken by it. It was like all of a sudden something had changed in my life. The Bible was, a, was, a, was a, a love letter to me, not commandments from a distant God. It was Everything was new. I, I, I couldn't get enough of it. Christians, your view of Christians will change. Before, they might have been nice people. They might have been irritating. You might have thought they were aliens from another planet. Christians. But now they're like family. Well, you don't get along with everybody in your family. But they are your brothers and your sisters now. They're certainly not perfect. But what else has changed is that you know you're not either. And before you used to natter away about their hypocrisy, and now you're recognizing your own hypocrisy. And your prayers aren't, Lord, I'm glad I'm not a hypocrite like them. Your prayers are, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Christians change, and you begin to love them. And lastly, Jesus changes. He was a nice man. He had some admittedly ad admirable teachings, but no real impact, no real meaning in my daily life. But now, he's the shepherd. I'm his sheep, gladly so. He's the savior. I'm a sinner that needs saved. He's the bridegroom. I'm his bride. He's the Lord, and I'm a joyful subject in his kingdom. When you find the scenery changing in your life, rejoice. Something has happened. Something big has happened. Maybe it's time to get baptized and declare it openly. Second thing I want to talk to you about is God's question. On the final day, God is going to ask you a question, something along the lines but you know what? We've been worried here this morning about when I believe and if I have enough faith. God's question is, has nothing to do with when you believe. And it has nothing to do with if your faith is strong enough. His question is, if you have believed. And do you believe now? Where is your faith now? doesn't matter if it's a huge faith or if it's a mustard seed. Where is it pointing to? What is it attached to? I hope we can all give the right answer. If you say, well, Jesus, I've always thought you were amazing, and I'm happy to tell you today that 80% of my trust is in you because I want to be a responsible person, and I'm going to take care of the other 20% myself. I mean, I'm not a bad person, you know, and on and on, you natter. I'm contributing the other 20% myself, you and me, partners in salvation, yes, and the larger part of the credit 
goes to you, of course. And another person might say, 99% of the credit goes to you, Lord. I know that. I'm just going to cover off that 1% just to make a little contribution to my salvation. Both of those are the wrong answer. I don't care how you got here. Nor if you know the date of the day when you crossed over. Just please make sure you can say from the bottom of your heart, my salvation is through faith in Christ alone. Alone. 100%. I have contributed nothing to my salvation. Pardon me, I actually did contribute something. I contributed all the sin. But he's covered it all. A sacrifice of atonement. In closing, I close by reminding us that that little church in Philippi that began on the banks of a river, we will find it has significant spiritual power. I think because it started in a prayer meeting. May God grow ever more deeply in us a culture of God-glorifying, God-seeking, God-dependent prayer. Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for that moment recorded from history, the riverside, the prayer meeting, the gospel shared, people saved. Keep on doing that good work, we pray, in the year 2023 amongst us. Here I am, Lord. I'm listening. Amen.